1: It's a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut, so happy to have all of you out there with us. It would be disingenuous for me to tell you that the biggest story in Georgia news today is that the General Assembly is coming back into session for their 2023 legislative uh, session. Uh, because you all know that's not true. The biggest story in Georgia news is that the Bulldogs tonight play again for the national championship. In Los Angeles and I know that many many of you out there are very excited about that are going to be staying up late tonight to watch them win their second championship in a row we are going to talk about politics today but I certainly wanted to start by saying go dogs!" and that's coming from a Chicagoan you understand a guy that grew up with a Big Ten so <laughs> I've been converted as I've watched Georgia play great football for Uh, past seasons um, uh, particularly. All right, we do have a lot of politics to talk about because the General Assembly is going into session this morning, although they'll be having a very brief session too because some of them are going to immediately head for Los Angeles to be out there for the game. Uh, But let me introduce the panel and we'll begin our conversations. Of course, it's Monday, which means Patricia Murphy is back with us. She's a political reporter and columnist for the AJC. As you all know, she writes the Political Insider column, which appears in the newspaper on Wednesdays and Sundays. Uh, She also oversees The Jolt, which you can read if you're a subscriber at AJC.com. Patricia, thanks so much for being here today.
0: Good morning, Bill, and thanks so much for having me on a huge news day with big news on both coasts for Georgia.
1: That's exactly Right. Maya Prabhu, your colleague who covers the Capitol, government reporter for the AJC, is with us as well. Maya, have you been like doing more workouts, getting set for this session? I I covered 19 sessions of the Georgia General Assembly before I got smart enough to get out of it. Uh, I know how exhausting it can be. Are you ready for it?
2: You know, I think, honestly, I was in denial until yesterday, so no, but this is my sixth, my sixth session, so I think I'll be okay without the prep I normally do.
1: Well, we're very glad that you could be here with us today, and I wish you well as the session starts to unfold. Margaret Coker, uh, who is Editor-in-Chief of The Current, which uh, is based down in Savannah on the coast, is with us as well. Uh, Margaret, you'll be following the session, obviously, with particular uh, look at what's happening in terms of uh, lawmakers and legislation that will affect uh, the Georgia coast. Yes?
3: Absolutely. Yeah, the um, coastal Georgia is waking up to a new political year where we're going to be having a lot of potential muscles to be flexed. The new Speaker of the House is um, from Effingham County. The new head of the Georgia Black Legislative Caucus is our own Carl Gilliard from Savannah. And, of course, the U.S. Senator, Raphael Warnock, is also born and raised in Savannah.
1: You'll have a lot to look at as the session unfolds. Emma Hurt, too. We're so glad to have you back, Emma. Emma is a reporter for Axios Atlanta. Uh, this morning, I read two stories about uh Uh, uh, issues that uh, journalists think are going to come up in this session. One was in the AJC, but the other was uh, yours, Emma, uh, in Axios Atlanta, where you highlighted some of the issues that you and your uh, fellow Axios Atlanta staffers think might be part of the session. We'll get to those in a while, but thank you, Emma, for being here.
4: Thank you, as always, for having me, Bill. Go dogs. I say normally it's kind of (laughs) funny for me being like one of two it feels like non-UGA graduates running around Georgia politics, but um, t- on today it feels like everyone is a bulldog, honorarily.
1: That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. We're all dogs. Um, all right, Patricia. Let's start uh, by talking about the new leadership. I think our listeners would be well served to get some sense of who these people are who are stepping into such crucial roles, both Speaker of the House and the new Lieutenant Governor, who presides over the Senate. So Patricia, if I could, let me ask you to start a conversation about just who is John Burns, who will be elected speaker uh, today without much question. Um, replacing David Ralston, who served for well over a decade, was in many ways beloved uh, by his members, who was a, uh, a usually a calm and cooling force in the House And John Burns has some big shoes to step into. Why don't you start us off on telling us a little about who John Burns is?
0: Yeah, of course. Sir. John Burns is somebody who's very familiar to people inside the State House of Representatives, but he's going to be kind of a relatively new name from most Georgians because he kept an extremely low external profile in the Georgia House. And I would say uh, the same of most people who served in the leadership with David Ralston, because Ralston really was very much seen as the voice and the face of, um, of the State House. And his uh, lieutenants, although very powerful in their own rights, didn't really uh, step out to talk to press very much, didn't make much news of their own. John Burns has been the um, uh, House Majority Leader for the last many years, very close associate of David Ralston's. And when the time came to vote for speaker, there really was this um, underlying question, what would be the closest uh approximation of sort of a Ralston-style leadership among the people who put themselves forward. And John Burns, because he was so close to Ralston, um, and because of his general uh, demeanor, very collegial, um, was seen as really somebody who would be a, a continuing, steadying force. Um, And Margaret Coker can go into his sort of personal biographic details. Um, He certainly has a has a background in agriculture, small business. um, And uh, I think people in the House, especially the Republican members, and even the Democrats are feel very comfortable with this change in leadership, on the other side of the of the Capitol, there is also an entirely new leadership team. Lieutenant Governor Bert Jones is coming in as the leader of the Senate. But as always, and Maya can get into this, the state Senate, there's always sort of a an unanswered question of who's really in charge, sort of like a game of thrones yeah. all day long. <laughs> um, and it changes from day to day. And so that is a less steady. and. 100 percent new leadership team in the state senate on the state house side jan jones was the number two for the last many years and she continues as the second in command for um, house republicans but they too have a full new leadership team as well
1: well thank you for uh that uh summation of the leaders let's my uh let's do this um margaret talk a little bit more about first john burns he's 70 years old he did grow up on a farm down your way. He grew up about halfway, I think, between Augusta and Savannah. Um, he had, he amassed massive amounts of land in, during his uh, early years, and as he continued as a farmer and a small businessman, he's in the timber business. Um, so he's, he's a very successful uh, farmer, farmer, businessman, uh, and and uh, more. Margaret, tell, tell us what you've uh, seen with John Burns as you've covered him and your people have covered him down your way.
3: Yeah, well, first of all, it's pr- on today of all days, we should note that John Burns is a graduate of Georgia Southern University, not UGA, um, although I expect uh, he will be rooting for the dogs tonight. Um, yeah, John Burns is... Um, you know, he is a man who's grown up in in sort of classic rural Georgia, um, surrounded by pecan trees and um, and lots of natural beauty. He's he's a um, he's a quiet, soft-spoken person who has been staunchly conservative um, and has run almost completely unopposed over the last twenty years that he's represented his district. And it is um it's a it's a beautiful part of the state. Uh, lots of lots of trees, lots of wide open vistas, and um a lot of of um, you know, it's a rivershed. Um it is staunchly rural, but you know, in one of the the big moves from last year is of course the huge Hyundai deal that um, was signed through through the state in order to build an enormous new industrial park to um that will bring georgia into the future of of electronic vehicles Um, there's a load of development issues that is going to affect both john burns's own district um, perhaps even make him a richer person since he's such a large land owner in these parts Um, there's a lot of accountability issues to watch on him one thing that everyone should understand is even though he comes from this rural background. He's an incredibly sophisticated politico. He's taken advantage of Georgia's campaign finance laws. As he's run and opposed, he's still built up huge campaign war chests every election cycle. And according to Georgia law, he's been able to re-gift that money to other legislators as they are running, um, help them get over the finish line. And as a result, over 100 people at the state house now, you know, of have to consider him their buddy um he's got a lot of favors to pull in if there's contentious legislation and and votes that he has to help wrangle uh, those relationships those financial relationships will will help him um, do a pretty effective job as speaker
1: um emma you know w- given that this is a citizen legislature uh everybody is, has some business or some service industry they're involved with and so quite often They end up voting on issues that can affect them in a positive or negative way, really, in their businesses. John Burns was the author of the constitutional amendment that was approved in November, which gave uh, timber companies a tax break. He insisted it wasn't a uh, conflict of interest, uh, despite the fact that he owns thousands of acres of timber, because it helped the entire industry at large, and timber is such a big economic driver for The state, and you know, there are inevitable uh, moments when legislators end up voting for issues that are of benefit to themselves, and I I, I sometimes don't know quite how to take that into account when I think about people like Burns.
4: Yeah, I mean, and it's because, to your point, of this is a citizen legislature, and um, you really need to be independently wealthy to afford to do the job anyway. All of these people have. Lots of other work and investments. Um, and they are the subject matter experts in their areas. So depending on whatever issue, whatever angle they come at from an issue, whatever side of an, an industry, you know, doctors tend to be writing laws about healthcare, and lawyers are writing the laws about judicial civil and criminal code and, you know, in people who work insurance or writing laws about insurance. And so that is the way that the chamber and citizen legislatures across the country function. I agree that it's it's tricky. Um, I mean, Governor Brian Kemp owns Timberland as well. So you can it goes to extends far. I guess the most important part is that we try our best to be very aware of those conflicts and at least call them out as we just did here. And for reporting like um, Margaret's team did at The Current about how Burns has been leveraging his campaign finance funds. Shining a light on them is uh, is most important. And then if real conflicts become clear that seem to have swayed policy in some way that might have been untoward, you know, we obviously call that out too.
1: Um, before we leave Burns, and, I, and I'm going to ask you in a moment, Maya, to give us an insight about Bert Jones, the new Lieutenant Governor who will preside over the Senate. But before we get to that, uh, very quickly, Patricia, Um, David Ralston, of course, had a reputation over the years. Um, you talked about the wild west of the Senate and it's out of the Senate that some of the most conservative bills have emerged over the years. And, um, David Ralston in any number of of high profile instances was the guy on the house side who tamped down some of the most conservative issues that came from the Senate, um, Do we expect that Burns may play a similar role in the House? We don't really know how he's going to deal with, again, some of the issues, kind of far-right agenda that sometimes the Senate takes up, do we?
0: I think that's exactly right. We don't know the answer to that, and that's going to be a major um, outstanding question about Burns and then also it will be um, important for this session for Burns to really establish what kind of a legislator he's going to be. Um, it's very important for him in these early years to um, kind of get a hold on his caucus to, um, as the majority leader, I think in the past years he has a very good understanding of who his caucus is and where his votes are coming from and the issues that are important to them or could damage them down the line. So. He knows his caucus very well, but he'll now expand his own role into leadership of the full House Um, and uh, Ralston always had a sense of knowing when an issue could actually sort of destroy the House from the inside out and seems to avoid that at all costs, Um, or at least Uh, sort of soften it to the extent that it was possible. Even if those bills went through many times, they had um, additions to them that made them more palatable for more people. And so um, this is just gonna be a hugely important session for Burns to establish that, um, both for his caucus and then for the rest of the House. And then also what we'll be looking to see what is the relationship between the House and the Senate and then also the governor's office, um, uh, These are all, I would say, kind of the leadership issues are the biggest Mm -hmm. questions out there. And then the policy and the resolution to those policies will follow from there. And uh, one quick note, in speaking to Republican members um, who have worked with Burns for a very long time, they really described Ralston as a almost a father figure in the House um, and uh, Burns, although they were really of similar age, as more of a peer. Um, And so uh, it will be also for us to watch to see does he um, sort of sort some of these issues out to the other members of his leadership team. Um, it's also important to note that the leadership team includes Chuck F. Stration from Gwinnett County, who himself is one of the more, um, although he's still quite conservative, he also was the author of a number of bills that were um, widely adopted by the House, um, including criminal justice reform and other issues. And so he is not seen as a hardliner and he was elected um, by this full House as well. And so I think that's an indication of the title of leadership we, we uh, expect from Stration and maybe from others as well.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, before you all start inundating me with notes, yes, it's true that even though Ralston tried to tamp down some of the more extremist measures, he eventually, although he opposed it at first, went along with the effort to uh, 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 pass extremely restrictive, the, the real, really ex- restrictive abortion law that we now have in Georgia. So there were times when he gave in to his members on, on some of those extreme, more extreme issues. Maya, uh, you followed Burt Jones over on the Senate side as he came up in the ranks, became a leader over there. Now he will preside over the Senate. Um, I, I suppose we have to start by saying the one thing hanging over his head politically as he goes in is the fact that he was a fake elector And until Judge Robert McBurney removed him from uh, uh, the investigation that Fonnie Willis uh, has been conducting, he was a target of her investigation. So if you don't mind, let's talk a bit about that and how it might matter in terms of his leadership in the Senate. But then give us some more sense of his style, Maya. Um, Yeah,
2: so... His campaign was always very clear in pointing out that while yes, he was con- you know one of the fake electors, he was not under investigation. Um, but you know he he has company in the chamber with the uh, incoming Senator Sean Still also being one of the fake electors. And the Democrats may have gained a seat in the chamber, but I feel like the Republicans who are coming in, skew a little bit more conservative. So we're going to see an even more conservative, the Senate is already known for being very conservative. We're we're most likely going to see an even more conservative um, chamber. Uh, As far as uh, Lieutenant Governor Jones, um, I would say in the years that I've been here, he's kind of been kind of like behind the scenes, not very flashy, not sponsoring a lot of big legislation. Um, he did sponsor a sports betting bill before he um, before he started running for lieutenant governor. Um, but, you know, other than that, he's kind of been in the background. Um, he, you know, I think right after the 2020 election, he might have lost some confidence of some of his colleagues um, and throughout the primary season was able to Uh, gain their trust back, especially after the primary heading into the general and they've, you know, lined up behind him. So it will be interesting to see if those fractured relationships that were repaired hold and how people will, um, you know, support him going forward. A big question going into the session was, were they going to try and strip some of his powers as lieutenant governor? And they were very clear in, Putting out a press release to say no, we are not going to to strip him of his power. So we'll see what happens come Friday when he's finally in the chamber.
1: Yeah, and we should point out that that is there is a, something of a tradition of members of the Senate stripping their lieutenant governors, their presidents of the Senate of power of of their some of their powers and turning them over to the majority leader. So what you're saying is consequential because it could head off what is often t- t- tumultuous. Uh, problem when the Senate does, in fact, turn away from the uh, lieutenant governor to look for leadership uh, elsewhere. So let me um, uh, add my stick with me on this for a minute. We have let me give a picture of this legislature. There are 53 new members of the House and Senate, which is, you know, there's 236 total. So that's an enormous number of freshmen coming in who have to learn the ropes, have to find their way around the building, if uh, nothing else. It is the most diverse General Assembly in state history, 83 non-white members. Um, Mark Nisi, your colleague, points out that Black, Hispanic, Asian-American, Afro-Latino, Arab-American legislatures make up this far more diverse body. Um, Republicans still hold a very significant majority. They hold 101 of 180 state House seats and 33 of 56 Senate seats. So while Democrats gained uh, three seats, uh, they still uh, have a long way to go before uh, they're going to have as big an impact as, of course, they want to. Um, Maya, just weigh in on, on all of that very briefly.
2: Yeah, you know, I I had an article back in November talking about um, the the diversity going into the into the legislature this year. It is very interesting the the numbers and and some of these groups are forming caucuses for the first time. Right, we're seeing an Asian American caucus, we're seeing a Hispanic Latino caucus. Um, we, uh, you know, I don't know what this means, and I missed it because I was preparing to be here. Um, but there was uh, there had become this history of. <clears throat> Republican women not joining the women's caucus. Um, and they honored Jan Jones this morning at 8 a.m. So, you know, we'll also be interested to see, you know, if more Republican women join the women's caucus. So it's it's definitely a, a very diverse legislature. And, you know, we have these 53 new folks and four more who are coming after these special elections this month. Um, so yeah, there there is that um concern of folks getting their footing, learning their way around. But then there's also um opportunity for some of these folks who've been there for a little while to to flex their muscles and and pick up some steam.
1: Margaret.
3: Um quickly back to Burt Jones. Um in um your listeners should understand that he comes from a, an incredibly strong family owned company um, that run uh, chains of of gas stations throughout Georgia. Mm -hmm. His family's gas stations um, also um, have inside of them, many of them have the slot machines that are regulated by Georgia Lottery. Um, Burt Jones uh, ran as someone who is supportive of widening uh, gambling in Georgia. And so in terms of special interests and potential hot topics, um, his position in the Senate could be um, a pretty strong vote in order to to get gambling in Georgia passed this year.
1: Yeah, he grew up in Jackson, Georgia. He's from Jackson, uh, Georgia, and from a very wealthy uh, uh, family down there. Uh, thank you for that uh, part of our conversation. Why I, I'd like to turn to Brian Kemp and the, uh, uh, the muscle that he has gained after his major victory over Stacey Abrams, Um, Let's get a break out of the way, come back and talk about Kemp this session, and then talk about some of the issues that our panel thinks we're going to see uh, pop up as the session gets going. Uh, This is Political Rewind.
0: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
1: The Currents, Margaret Coker, AJC government reporter Maya Prabhu, and Patricia Murphy of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution as well join us today. Uh, Patricia, two Associated Press reporters based in Atlanta, uh, Jeff Amy and Bill Barrow, uh, moved a profile essentially of Brian Kemp on this day that the session gets underway. Chase McGee, Uh, spotted it and passed it on to me. I'm just going to read the first uh, couple of lines of it and then ask all of you, starting with you, Patricia, to weigh in on this. Governor Brian Kemp is done being underestimated. Having vanquished both a Donald Trump-backed Republican challenger and Democratic star Stacey Abrams to win re-elections, Kemp is looking to expand his influence in his second term, free from the caricature of the gun-toting, Pickup driving migrant-catching country boy that emerged during his first campaign for governor. A new vision of Kemp steering his party toward a non-Trumpian conservatism made its debut in November. his November victory speech after it became clear he had defeated Abrams. Um, so, Patricia, uh, weigh in on that. It seems uh, right, actually. Uh, that that seems like a pretty uh, uh, correct statement. Uh, characterization of Kemp at this moment in history.
0: Yeah, I would also point out, though, that that caricature of Kemp in 2018 was entirely of his own making. (laughs) That was based all on his own campaign commercials of him pointing a gun at a teenage boy who was supposedly dating his daughter and promising to, quote, round up all the illegals in his pickup truck. So (laughs) that was deliberate and it worked. And that was to get him through that GOP primary. And so, um, Brian Kemp is an incredibly sophisticated, um, effective political mind. He also has a very um, strategic staff around him. And, he coming off of the last year where he defeated um, former Senator David Perdue by more than 50 points and Stacey Abrams by more than eight points. I don't think if you asked anybody at the beginning of last year, if he would have had those kinds of margins over those very well-known, um, well-financed and, and you know, typically well-liked, especially within their own parties, would Kemp have been able to do that? I don't think anybody saw that coming. And so he's coming off of these huge electoral wins. Um, and this is also when the new leadership in the state house comes into play. Um, there had been always this tension between the governor's office, the house and the Senate, because it's entirely new leadership in the two chambers and Kemp coming in off of this huge reelection. It feels to me like he has kind of this gigantic open road in front of him. There are very few obstacles um, that we know about. <laughs> Obviously events happen, have happened in Brian Kemp's career, Um that nobody anticipated, Uh, but he has this entirely huge open road to decide what he wants to do and the direction he wants to take. There are no more political foes in his way. There's no reelection to deal with. Um, We do think he obviously wants to continue his career in politics after the governor's race, so it's never gonna be far from his mind. Um, But this, this is now the administration that he wants, not the administration that he has to have because he's got some challenger or another or a state house or state Senate um, in his way. This is what he wants to do. From what we understand, it will be very economic focused. Um, It will also likely be very focused on the issue of crime statewide, especially um, gang violence that he has really focused on within the last year. I think we'll see more, much more of that coming up and we'll hear about it in his inaugural address. Um, But he's also, you know, no. Squish moderate. He's not going to help the Democrats change their primary date. Um, he's going to remain uh, conservative, but I think more high profile nationally than he has been in the past as well.
1: So, so Emma, I'm, it's interesting to hear Patricia list a few of those issues because, um, as we all know, during the campaign, he was particularly silent on what he wanted to accomplish during a uh, second term Stacey Abrams criticized him frequently uh, for that and and uh, we still don't know what his broader agenda is going to look like He will be inaugurated on Thursday perhaps we'll get some more clues in his inaugural address but his uh, state of the state address where he uh, governors typically really lay out their agendas will come after that And also I should add there's the eggs and issues breakfast which is a traditional, Uh, event for big, big business leaders and others uh, to come together to hear from the leadership. Perhaps there, Kemp will give us some more clues. Uh, All of that is to say, Emma, we're still waiting. Yes, he's going to go after crime, but we're still waiting for his broader agenda, Emma.
4: We are. I mean, his reelection campaign was very disciplined in that it was focused on, here is what I said I was going to do, and I did it. And full stop. And there was not much detail to your point about what he wanted to do, very different from Stacey Abrams's, um obviously very different election dynamics for her, but she had plans upon plans upon plans about what she was going to do. Um, you know, I think to Patricia's point, we're looking for, you know, some theoretically bipartisan um, movement on things ra- around economic development, workforce development, public safety and crime. And And, um, you know, he will not likely be bipartisan um, legislation, but also uh, something to watch is he's referred kind of ambiguously to um, dealing with advocate public defender, uh, sorry, public defenders, advocate um, district attorneys who kind of refuse to enforce laws that they disagree with trying to deal with that. But that's a very tricky issue, as we know, because each state lawmaker has DAs to answer to who would not want that. So um, that'll be a fascinating issue to watch um, to see whether that is something he could pull over the line. Um, But yeah, I think that um, we are still waiting and it'll probably be a bit of time before it's fully clear as everyone starts to feel each other out here in this very new legislature, leadership wise and throughout the freshman class.
1: Maya, uh, um, let's talk about this uh, crime issue that he and Bert Jones both said they were going to address in a very specific way during the session. But even in making those statements, uh, it's they sounded more like political statements, almost campaign statements, rather than news about how they were going to drive forward on the issue because they said that the problem, and, and Emma sort of referred to it, was these permissive, overly liberal district attorneys who were not going after uh, criminals in the way they should. So it sounded more political in the first uh, iteration. We don't know, Maya, what they're going to do about it specifically. We we know a little bit, right, Maya?
2: Yeah, you know, something that I found really interesting is, you know, a lot of these things that they're criticizing uh, prosecutors for are out of, the, excuse me, the criminal justice reform efforts by previous Republican governor, Nathan Deal. And I feel like for four years, they've kind of picked away at all of the changes that Deal made and kind of reversed a lot of these things. And I think we're gonna, I think we're going to see more of that. And what I was gonna say when Emma brought this up about prosecutors is when I, you know, y'all know I spent a lot of time covering abortion. And when I speak to advocates, When they say, uh, you know, abortion rights advocates that when I ask them, you know, what are you expecting this year? That's the angle that they think they're going to come after. They're going to go after all these prosecutors who said that they're not going to enforce the abortion law. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, uh, Governor Camp and Lieutenant Governor Jones are talking about various crimes that they don't think are being enforced in the way that they would like them to be enforced. Um, But I you know, a lot of this might stem from um, abortion regulations.
1: Margaret,
3: and then we get back just a much more granular view of what it means to be a DA in the state of Georgia right now. Um, when during COVID uh, trials were um, were put in abeyance for more than a year, when um, DAs who were elected or reelected in twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty two, when when they're facing thousands and thousands of cases in their backlogs. I mean, DAs are just trying to get through um, the the case files that they have and manage those in an efficient um, and constitutionally legal way. Um, There's there's a lot of work that has to be done in order to clear that backlog, let alone prosecute new crimes. So I imagine that as constitutional officers in the state of Georgia, DAs are going to have a lot to say about how to both uh, make sure that uh, all of of us in in Georgia are safer from criminals and and manage that that flow when in at least here in coastal Georgia uh you know that that their um, offices are struggling to get enough funding to get enough staffing to get enough prosecutors in order just to handle the workflow day to day
1: yeah that's a really good uh, uh uh point to add to this conversation um all right let's let's take a look at just a few look. The session is going to run, it, you know, by law, of course, it's a 40-day session. That doesn't mean it plays out in 40 consecutive days. As I think you all know, the legislators play with the calendar extensively. Uh, so typically, um, I remember back in the early days when I was covering the Capitol, it ended by the end of March partly because Speaker Thomas B. Murphy wanted to be able to get to Florida to see spring training for at least a couple days uh, before it ended. Um, But now it goes well into uh, April. So that said, over the 40-day session, Emma, uh, we'll be talking about a lot of issues in very granular detail. But let's just go over a few of them uh, like as headlines today. Emma... Give us your thoughts on just a couple of the issues you expect are going to be taken up by this uh, legislature.
4: So, I mean, there's a lot of things, but the three things I I, I have to pick top ones, runoff reform, it's unclear, very unclear what might happen, but the discussion about it is in the air, and the frustration and the exhaustion um, is, is very much of this moment, and so we will see more progress than we've ever seen, I think we can say in terms of background, backroom discussions, at least there'll be some legislation, legislative attempts, ranked choice voting, lowering the threshold back to 45% are some of the ideas. It's very unclear what might happen, but it's something that people talk about a lot. Sports betting, you know, with the Metro chamber behind this as a standalone issue, it seems to have (laughs) more legs than before, as we know gambling in all forms is kind of like a zombie issue that kind of comes back to life. And you're not sure if it's really a real live human or if it's just a zombie. And then I'm also watching for EV regulation changes because that bipartisan Mm -hmm. joint um, study committee came out with a really big report. And I think given, you know, the Hyundai plant, the Rivian plant, and just the movement of our automobile industry, um, there's a lot of bipartisan interest in changing the way that um EV charging is is taxed um and the um, regulation of charging stations as well um I want to say one more thing about Brian Kemp I'm sorry to jump us back but just briefly as we no, look no, at this go session ahead. and we look at and we look at Brian Kemp in a second term you know I think people maybe wonder like oh well he's not running for re-election so maybe he'll you know, stay more in the middle and or maybe even work with Democrats more. And he might on some issues, but what I'm hearing and what we've known from watching him and those who know him well, like Brian Kemp is a very conservative person on his own, socially conservative and fiscally conservative. So it's something to keep in mind as we watch what he prioritizes and what he takes up that just because he's not running for reelection in a battleground state again, doesn't mean, you know, he's he's not going to keep doing, keep making conservative policy as he
1: moves forward. I'm glad you uh, point that out. That's exactly right. Um, And I think in a way, Patricia sort of pointed us in that direction by suggesting that this is not going to be the end of Brian Kemp's career, his second term as uh, governor. Patricia, jump in and um, give us a couple of your thoughts on what other issues we are likely to see come forward.
0: So, obviously, Emma has hit, I think, the really big ones. And to Maya's point, um, I do think there are going to be some considerations around uh, the abortion issue because this is the first legislative session when we have um, the six week ban in effect. It's still obviously um, being uh, dealt with in the courts, but I. Uh, there was a big push last year to look at um, abortion uh, medication a way for women to access abortion by mail um there are other states right now that are already moving to ban that so that women can't access that after their six week and um I would expect to see some movement like that um, perhaps from Republicans as well as Democrats working to um, protect uh anything that comes through the mail I I just I feel like, we're not done on the abortion issue yet because it is such a new day um, in the landscape for that issue. Um, And then also, I think um, in terms of economic development, we have just so much manufacturing flooding into the state right now. There is just going to have to be some extremely unsexy but very important work done on roads, on um, broadband, which we see going in right now to tons and tons of counties. Um, And then there's just a ton of money uh, to be spent still from um, uh, all of the COVID financing that's come down to the state of Georgia. So I think a lot of this will be a lot of just nuts and bolts operations of the state, and um, also noodling around the edges on some of these social issues um, that we know will never be put to bed as long as there's a legislature in town to deal with it.
1: Maya, we should point out, though, that while there is still a ton of money and the state reserve is still enormous, um, legislators' leaders are signaling Maya that they want to be careful about how they spend. They think they're going to cut back some of the spending uh, because of these fears about a recession ahead. Maya,
2: you know, I, you know, we've been hearing for a few years now. Everybody's expected us to go into a recession. I think they are surprised by the fact that things have held as long as they have. Um, but yeah, they're, they have a lot of money to spend, but you're not going to see a lot of um, efforts to expand services, things that are going to be annual. They're, we'll see a lot of one-time money spend. I know Governor Kemp has talked about sending more money back, uh, more tax money back to Georgians. Um, so I think those are the types of spending that we're going to see with this um surplus money that we have um i you know blake tillery the finance chairman is very very fiscally conservative just in general um even before he was chairman so i don't see uh i don't see like huge spending dashes coming um even though we have so much money
1: margaret closes out in this segment of the show
3: Yeah, I I think um, Georgia voters and residents here uh, along the coast are really expecting to see movement on um, education and updating the Quality Basic Education Act, which has not been updated since the mid-1980s. That is the state law that determines how much money uh, per student is put into public schools in Georgia from the state budget. And the formula is incredibly outdated um, and schools are are necessary for so many different uh, reasons. I mean, obviously parents want a better life for their children. Manufacturers coming into Georgia want highly trained workers to come work at their plants. And um, philosophically speaking, it's an incredibly divisive issue about about how and what to teach our children. But I think everybody can agree, Republican and Democrat alike, that that a better use of funds and perhaps more funds going into core issues, including pre-K education, including transportation, including school lunches, these are all things that a lot of different communities would benefit from, rural and urban
1: alike. Margaret, I am so glad you mentioned quality basic education. It's a very complicated issue. It's been enormously controversial over the years. The original act was passed in the mid-'80s by Governor Joe Frank Harris, and as you say, it deserves updating. Because it's a complicated issue, we're going to get into it in depth when we have some real uh, educational uh, budgetary experts uh, to talk with us about it. But, yeah, I think it'll be fascinating to watch. We have to remember Nathan Deal thought he was going to uh, overhaul uh, QBE, and it became too hot a political uh, issue for him uh, to take on. So it'll be interesting to see if, in fact, this is the session where they really address this much-needed reform of how schools across the state are funded. Let's get to our final break of the show. When we come back, let's talk about what happened on Capitol Hill in Washington over the weekend. This is Political Rewind. Patricia Murphy, uh, the week-long humiliation of Kevin McCarthy finally came to an end in the early hours of Saturday morning. He was elected Speaker of the House. What I'd like to do, we only have a few minutes left, but I want to focus on a couple of fascinating photographs that popped up on social media that, in fact, really kind of tell us something about what might be uh, happening with a couple of Georgians as the Republicans organize the House. First, of course— uh, Patricia, is the fact that as McCarthy was still struggling for votes in the early hours of Saturday morning, there's a photograph of Marjorie Taylor Greene holding up her cell phone. Uh, we see on the screen, it's a it's a call with Donald Trump, and she's trying to get another member who's a holdout to take the call. The reason it's uh, some significance is it because it tells us a lot about the power that Marjorie Taylor Greene is likely to have having stuck with Kevin McCarthy from the very beginning. Yes?
0: Absolutely. This is starting to look like a big risk for uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene around Mm -hmm. Thursday and Friday of last week because she has been – truly one of his staunchest and most vocal allies um, for the entire past year. Um, She was standing very famously over his shoulder when he rolled out the Republican agenda for the years ahead. And she really made it her business to help get him elected speaker. Nobody knew how important her role would become. And so when we're looking at which members of the Freedom Caucus does he put on the Rules Committee, who goes on to the Oversight Committee, look for Marjorie Taylor Greene's name right up at the top, unlike the other Freedom Caucus members who really dug in their heels for reasons that were inexplicable by the end. um, She never wavered from McCarthy, and she even used like her greatest levers of power, her relationship with Donald Trump to get him over the line. And so um, McCarthy, now she's built a lot of trust with McCarthy, and now she's obviously going to be able to um, extract that from him, but then also remain a loyal player um, as long as she wants to.
1: Uh, By the way, the other photograph uh, that Marjorie Taylor Greene put out on social media is her literally cheek-to-cheek crouched down next to Kevin McCarthy after he won a selfie, in uh, which she is proudly uh, congratulating him on his victory. Um, There's another, Margaret, I don't know if, I, I, I didn't get a chance to pass this out to everybody out there, but there's another really fascinating photograph, Andrew Clyde, Georgia congressman, far-right-wing congressman, uh, who was one of the holdouts until the very last minute against uh, Kevin McCarthy. Andrew Clyde finally stands to give his vote to McCarthy, and there's a photograph taken from behind him of a member of Congress holding a Bible to Andrew Clyde's back as he casts his ballot. And I found it fascinating for a couple reasons, because... I'm frankly more and more concerned about Christian nationalism and what's going to happen in this country with that. Uh, but also, you know, beyond just the Bible, the fact that Andrew Clyde came around means it's possible he may get something uh, decent out of all this as well.
3: Yeah, it, it, lots of strange images coming out of of that um, of of those days of of sheer political chaos. Um, Of course, a lot of backroom dealing that that we're not all aware of yet in terms of who's going to get um, committee assignments, who's going to get subcommittee assignments. You know, the 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 Mm. incident where we almost came to fisticuffs on the floor of the House um, apparently revolved around potential promises to to get um, subcommittee uh, um, assignments. You know, there are people are jockeying for power, Um, are our legislators from Georgia are um, are among those, and it's it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see who carries grudges into this legislative year in Congress and who doesn't. Um, one would hope that you know photos of of the Bible in any situation are urging people to be um, to be better human beings and to promote peace and and compassion rather than violence. And um, I, we have no reason to believe that. Um, that the Bible was being used for nefarious ends um, in that photograph. And one would hope hope that um, calling calling on our our better angels um, to get things done for the American public is what all of our legislators are trying to do right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, I really wasn't suggesting there was something nefarious. I just thought there was something really odd about that. Um, Emma, let's go back to Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, there was a time When we would bring her up on the show, her latest outrage, whatever it might have been, and we'd get a lot of feedback from listeners saying, why do you pay attention to her? She's, you know, all you're doing is giving her a forum to get. But this is why we pay attention to a Marjorie Taylor Greene, because she is going to emerge as someone with a reasonable amount of power in this new Congress, Emma
4: absolutely and it is kind of remarkable to think that she's just been had had one term and where she started as kind of an outcast in a way i mean kevin mccarthy when she lost her committee assignment mccarthy um condemned the rhetoric that had caused that but didn't he he stood by her actually and didn't um you know fully distance himself from her and that was kind of a moment where we saw something that I think has connected that connects to what just happened with her support to him, that she has seen him as her way to get back into positions of power, to get into positions of power that she hasn't yet had on committees, et cetera. Um, And she is in a district that fully supports her I mean, she keeps winning by wide margins. I mean, she won by a little bit less than two years ago, but not much. And this was the first year that millions were spent against her. So she is someone to watch, and she is someone who seems to um, represent the Trump wing of the party in a new way.
1: Uh, Emma Hurt, thank you for that. You get the last word on today's Political Rewind. We're very happy uh, you could uh, be with us. Um, Margaret Coker, uh, thecurrentga.org is where people can read your publication online. Maya Prabhu, we look forward to your coverage of the Senate as the session really gets underway. And of course, Patricia Murphy, we know that you will be uh, writing about it in both your column and in your political reporting role, as well as on the jolt. So thank you all for a really, really meaningful conversation on this first day of the Legislative session. We are out of time uh, for today's show. Uh, We are, of course, back with another live show tomorrow morning at nine, repeated at two in the afternoon. Uh, I'm going to ask for forgiveness going in because it's going to be a very, very late night tonight as we watch Georgia in the national championship game. And I don't know quite how articulate Me or any of the people on our panel will be tomorrow morning, but we'll do our best to drink a lot of coffee and come back with a really good conversation. Uh, That's it. We're out of time. See you again tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and yes, go dog. Bye, everybody.